This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Yes, indeed. This is Zero G uh, on Triple R. So we are here for another day of chatting about... What are we chatting about today? All kinds of things. Murder, time travel, general violence, really, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I am Megan McHugh. And I'm Rob Jan. And today's episode is 1208. It's almost a Stephen King... uh, Short story. Or a room number in a hotel. Exactly. Uh, the title of the show is Royale Tour, which should give you a hint of where we're heading. And the podcast title is In Podard We Trust. And actually the uh, 1208 are the numbers of the hotel rooms that they stay in in um, bad oh. times at the El Royale. <laughs> Very bad times. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> but, you know, we could get away with that. You know, we could. Go, think- oh, oh, cool. <laughs> Actually, the numbers, I think, were one... Four, five... Four, five... And seven... Seven, something like that. Yes. (laughs) We will be delving into that today, of course. Yes. (laughs) And also, um, Doctor Who Rosa. Oh, my God, what an episode. Yes, it'll be good to dig into that. Oh, I should also tell you, we played This Old Heart of Mine is Weak for You, and that was by the Eiley Brothers. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is, of course, a track that is sung in Bad Times at the Real. Uh, uh, just a little bit of news here. Filmstruck, the streaming site yes. for art house films mm-hmm. and classic films, and the Criterion Collection has been struck down. Yes. Um, this is a personal blow to me because, you know, yeah. uh, this is, um, they, they've just decided that it's uh, a bit of a niche, and um, which it always was. Ugh, a niche, just, niche, niche. Yeah. And. Um, Oh, uh, disappointing! I am very disappointed. You've got until November the twenty ninth to watch every single thing. (laughs) (laughs) But you know how you have a list on your streaming list, Mm. and it'll be there forever. Oh, that's it. I always am like, I'll just save this and I'll get around to it. And then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So my ears are going to get a bit of a rest while I'm watching some of those because um, a lot of my silent movies. uh, Anyway, really sad that. And yeah, is that the first of the big streamers? I mean, okay, it wasn't it wasn't vast. It's not Netflix or Stan. But oh no, Presto was a uh, flash in the pan that came yeah, and went. Yeah. Um, See, this is the problem, isn't it? Um, we, if we had one ginormous streaming service that had mm. everything forever, mm. you know, then you'd sort of feel. Um, okay at, at not keeping big collections of DVDs and other, all the other media. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we could finally get rid of those 16 mil films. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I don't think I've got any of that anymore. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I mean, but that's not going to happen because of all the different licensing rights that people have. And everybody's got their claim on things mm-hmm. and yeah, it's always going to be, but I mean, I guess that's good to have a 
I don't know, market economy in that mm. business, keep things competitive, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I know, but we're the, cons- <laughs> we're the consumers. I know. It's, it's, it's not our dollar. It's not good for us to keep <laughs> having to spread our poor pennies across multiple services. Yeah. Um, Eventually it'll be, it'll be like, you know, the, there'll be a Doctor Who episode set in the future where the stream, everything is streamed completely mm. and your entire salary just goes... Straight to, straight like, to the, the requisite the, services. In fact, yeah. in fact, you'll be streaming your home. Gosh. <laughs> Like I wouldn't put it past all the free D things in your home will all be streamed. That's like a pop up, and you can yeah. change it at whim because yeah. it's like a streaming thing. Yeah. But if you don't keep up your payments, boom! Suddenly you, you've lost everything. Gosh, <laughs> like a bad IKEA ad where everything disappears <laughs> instead of appears, like in that Fight Club scene. Who says we don't do futurism on zero G? Exactly. Actually, nobody. <laughs> <laughs> they say we do too much. Stupid. No. Oh, I wanted to also mention, also mention things, a, a little children's book that's come out and it's called mm. um, Jonesy. Mm. Do you know about that one? Oh, no, I thought you were going to talk about something else. You no, go, what, no, what's your one? Jonesy is a tiny little Titan um, hardback kids book, I suppose you'd call it. But it's, it's, it, it's the adventures of Jonesy the cat aboard the Nostromo during the alien incident. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I love it. So it's from the cat's point of view. That's so good. <laughs> It's very funny. I, I've had a look at it, and it, it just blew me away. It's by Rory Lucy, L-U-C-E-Y. Uh, so check it out. I know they've got copies at least at uh, All Star Comics, possibly at the cool. other stores too. <laughs> it's just such a silly idea. And there's stuff in it, just like, um, for example, when um, uh, John Hurt's character, Kane, mm. has been face-hugged. He's in the infirmary. He's got the thing on his, his, his head, um, and they're examining him intently, the, you know, the rest of the crew. And Jonesy just jumps up onto his chest and sits and looks at this. <laughs> Knows what's going on there. His cat's He's doing. done for. <laughs> no, he just goes to sleep. <laughs> and, 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 and this is very detailed. The alien's um, uh, tail moves around poor old Kane's throat Ooh. And, and over Jonesy's paws. Yeah. It's his paws stuck and he's scrabbling to get his <laughs> So Ash comes in and goes poof and pushes him off. How <laughs> long is the, this book? It's um, about as long as an alien's tale, actually. Uh, it, it, it tells the whole story, but oh. from Jonesy's point of view, and it's not bloody at all because mm, mm. the cat doesn't care about any of it. Oh, no. Mm. Human, <laughs> human stuff like bleeding out it's, is yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it's all. not but of a cat's concern. I, I think that one stage he's looking at, um, he, they try to give him some cat food. And it's like Wayland Utani Company cat food. <laughs> and the look upon his the cat's face as he tries to choke this foul substance oh. down. It's like all cats or dogs are actually dogs never do that. Dogs just eat it anyway. Oh, yeah. but, but cats sort of they look at it and they look at you as if how could you? Yeah. You've... Oh, very well. I shall eat it. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's Jonesy. That's out now. We're on to uh, bad times at the El Royale. Yes, and I didn't hadn't realised until we got to the end credits of that one mm-hmm. that there's a fairly strong um, genre connection in terms of I didn't realise it was written and directed by Drew Goddard. Ah, well, this is this is true. So, so yeah. let me give you the spiel. The El Royale is a bi-state establishment. You have the option to choose a room in either the great state of California or the great state of Nevada. 
<laughs> it's it's uh, originally set in the, the story opens up in 1959. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's a bit of a jump when we get to 1969, and the kind of the El Royale Hotel. It reminds me of every hotel in every movie that you've ever seen. There's a genre one. Yes. Um, there's a, l- a little bit of the Overlook going on there. Mm. A bit of the Bates Hotel Motel. And I love a good empty lavish hotel. Yes. Like and just all those details and just thinking about how much that place would cost to run for no one. And retro quiche. Yes, yes. very cool. Uh, it also reminds me a little bit of the Grand Budapest Hotel in its eccentricities. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, it it's, it's kind of spins off a place called um, the Cal Never Lodge and Casino, which was... <laughs> I uh, see what they've done there. <laughs> it was in, in the 1960s. It was purchased by Frank Sinatra mm-hmm. and Dean Martin uh, and allegedly a Chicago mobster as well. <laughs> so uh, it was the hip place to be and lots of uh, conspiracy theories flow through there. Talk about Monroe and Kennedy. Yes. Jimmy Hoffa, <laughs> it's, it's everything all tied into one. So they're clearly riffing off that. Mm. And as I said, it sort of sits on the, the, the fictional hotel. The real one never did. Mm. But the fictional one sits on the state line uh, between California and Nevada and the line actually continues right through the hotel. And I thought there'd everywhere. be something a bit more to that, but I think it's kind of just a nice novelty edge to it in terms of hmm. there's nothing that's really story related for, for the... No, it's a bit of a MacGuffin. It is. Except, he says, thinking about it for the first time... I suppose the Duality. Nevada, yeah. Okay. Duality. Double... Double thing, uh, yeah. It's not a spoiler to say identities. Yeah. I think the trailer gives away enough that some of them have double identities. So there you go. Mm. There it is. It's, on the, it's one of those borderlands. Yeah, uh, yes. And all things, you know that things are going to be strange there. It feels very sinister to start. Mm-hmm. Seven strangers mm-hmm. gather there uh, for various reasons, all of them at odds with each other's plans. And basically we're in, I mean, everyone's made a lot about this being very Tarantino-esque. Well, this is what I was going to say, is that there's there's elements of that I felt straight away. Yeah, I mean, you could look at it and go Inglorious Bastards or, or especially The Hateful Eight. I was going to say Hateful Eight, mm-hmm. especially the title. I mean, he loves a good title card anyway, Tarantino does, and yeah. so um, he doesn't own doing t- title no, cards. No, but that's the thing. There were, I do think there were some elements of that. It was not as pacey as a Tarantino, though, until no. maybe the latter third. Mm-hmm. I felt it was quite a slow burn to start. And in that way, it's much more theatrical at the beginning, I think. Yeah. Um, much like a play. And we do know quite a bit about Drew Goddard, the director mm. and the writer. Yes. Uh, he is our guy. <laughs> Actually, you know. Yeah. I mean, writing and directing and executive producing, uh, his, his credits. You know, yes. that, these are, this is like... Things we're very familiar with royalty, and on Zero G. Exactly. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Angel, alias Lost. He was one of the creators of Marvel's Daredevil. I remember that from... I remember when I saw him in the titles for that and I was really impressed with the first season of Daredevil. Cloverfield. Um, he did one of my favourite horror movies ever, Cabin in the Woods. Cabin in the Woods, yeah, absolutely. That, oh, that'll be a good one to watch this week. I'm planning on getting a big stack of Halloween-y horror movies and watching them this week, <laughs> so I might add that to the list. Um, you know what I actually watched last night? This is a total digression. For the first time, all the way through... The original? Halloween. Yay! What did you think? This is top. Maybe we can discuss yeah, this later. Uh, we'll just put El Royale on hold for one second. Um, yeah, I mean, and it, it's so odd that I never saw that mm. all the way through before. Really, yeah. really odd. Yeah. It's John Carpenter. I know. It's Jamie I'm, Lee Curtis. I'm surprised. It's William Shatner. 
<laughs> and I tell you, I admit this freely right now, I actually thought mm. that Mike Myers played like the killer in it. groovy baby Mike yeah. Myers. <laughs> I'd never gone into it long enough and I just thought that there was some kind of <laughs> Just funny. coincidence. And, and this, yeah. was, this was also facilitated by seeing a YouTube video where some potty had substituted like Mike Myers. Like a joke Myers. one. Yeah, and I just thought, oh, cool, you know, this is... No, <laughs> no. <laughs> this is me being I, Anyway, now we return to El Royale. <laughs> but I'm glad you watched the... How, that's one of my top faves yeah. for this uh, season. Great soundtrack. Excellent, Excellent soundtrack. Anyway, back to uh, back to El Royale. El Royale, also horrific. In but its then own you way. know, a digression or a flashback in that oh, makes perfect exactly. sense too. In fact, I wouldn't be at all surprised if Mike Myers hadn't booked in <laughs> as a comedian, a stand-up comedian in this venue. Exactly. So you know, you, you, the, they built this hotel specially for this film, mm-hmm. um, and, and and it looks. Amazing. The neon lights the and neon, stuff. There's yeah. some great shots. There's a particularly good shot of John Hamm, which I thought was really The striking. jukebox. Yes. Yeah, the, the music is great as well. The food mats Yeah. Yeah, that you can get dodgy sandwiches. Gosh. Out of. I wouldn't have eaten anything out of those. No. No. Um, <laughs> this hotel is... is um, it's really one, you know, if this was an episode of The Outer Limits or Twilight Zone, mm-hmm. which I'm sure Drew Goddard loves and knows so well, yeah, uh, you wouldn't be surprised at all. So, you know, I mean, um, and the title actually would be, in a Twilight Zone, it would be Seven Strangers at the El Royale. Exactly. You know, it would be exactly like that. Yeah, and uh, it is very much about that strangers and the whole ensemble vibe and figuring out what's going on with each person yeah. um, and unpacking that, yeah. I don't. I think we'd be doing you a grave displeasure if we went too far into the characters. Yes. Uh, this film is one of those films that's like an onion and it likes to reveal each layer. So we shouldn't ruin that, though. No, but we can talk about the actors. Mm. Mm. Uh, Jeff Bridges there. Oh. <laughs> I've, I've, I've loved his acting forever, basically, yeah. you know, from... Obadiah Stane in Iron Man, Iron Man to the to the <laughs> sheriff in True Grit. To, mm. You know, I mean, there's so the the, the dude. There's just, just so many things that yeah. Jeff Bridges has done so well. And back to Starman. Yeah, oh my God. He... I saw that at the cinema back in the day. Oh, oh really? Yeah, yeah. Oh. And here he is um, playing a a character who is um, a strange one. <laughs> a strange one. I think he does very well in this. Do you mm. know what? He's actually just a pleasure to watch. Yeah. He's one of those guys who can shoot his cuffs and play with his collar and mm. uh, and uh, and just, like, lick his lips over a drink and you're thinking, there's so much acting going on there. Yeah. And he's also very able to make characters that could be one very one-dimensional or um, quite thin, very sympathetic mm-hmm. and quite, I mean... Sometimes he, he plays more to character. But in this, I felt like he did a really lovely job with um, the character that he's playing in this. Cynthia Erivo plays Darlene Sweet, a soul singer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's by herself too, ha-ha, <laughs> uh, who stays at the hotel. Boy, and you just think the people who are just uh, sort of tootling along to arrive at this hotel... They really picked the wrong day, didn't they? Oh, uh, I felt, I, yeah, there's certain characters I feel for more than others, but, yeah, oh, bad luck. By way of um, Tarantino, this also reminds me a little bit of um, From Dust to Dawn. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know. Uh, not that I'm saying there are vampires there or anything like no, that no. at all. But this this whole convergence and poor timing and just everything, I mean, this it's quite unrealistic, yeah. but just all these different layers of events happening in this one place. Well, there's, there's your Tarantino, you know, there's your uh, Pulp Fiction. Inglorious Bastards in some yeah, ways, just, like that kind just, of different things converging into one big mess. Mm. Um, I actually thought Cynthia was great. Um, yes, she's, she's wonderful. Because she is a singer, um, she just convinces in that role. And this is like, and this is to me, this is procedural. Mm. You know, uh, just as Tony Stark has his engineering thing, um, just as a vampire story needs good vampire procedural, she's a singer and she seems to get to the heart of the art. Of mm. that in this. It's, uh, it's not a one-note performance. No. But it's it really you make she actually she feels to me like the clear through note that carries through this film. I agree. She's definitely one to cling on to in terms of when you're watching this. Yeah, uh, Dakota Johnson mm. in there playing a hippie. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So we remember don't want to. Yeah. Well, and I mean, in terms of the timing as well, it reads quite a bit like a checklist of what's happening at that time. Sure. Like they really tap into a lot of historical stuff. Mm. One could argue too many things. Here's the zeitgeist of the hotel. Um, it, it, it's almost like, um, it's like, you know that photo in the Overlook Hotel in The Shining that's, you know, from the 20s or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's almost like this, this, this hotel is frozen back in that, in that sort of um, Rat Pack era. Yeah, exactly. But, it's, and then, but there's all these different threads coming in of things that happened in the 60s that are very mm. well known, like... Mm. Um, yeah, I don't want to give it away too much, but there's a, a, another thread that comes in later that I was like, oh, of course they're going to reference this yes, stuff. It was right about that time. Yeah. It's a big... Yeah. <laughs> We've got to be so elliptical here. I know, because I don't want to kind of give away that element. Um, I love John Hamm's character, uh, Dwight Broadbeck, vacuum cleaner salesman. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what to say there also without spoiling things, well, but yeah. the funny thing is, for me, you know, um, having seen him in Mad Men, uh, and his ultimate fate in that where he goes off you know, mm. sort of thing. Uh, that, that makes me, because there's a hippie in this, for some reason I, I feel like there's a juxtaposition of characters. Mm. I'm sure there isn't. <laughs> we have, um, uh, well, oh, Hemsworth? Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. And that's it. I don't want to talk too much about who he is because no. I was surprised by when they brought in that sort of chapter, but then it made a lot of sense as well. Yeah, I had no idea that's where they were going with that. Really Me neither. Annoying. But Me we've, neither. we've seen him do a lot of comedic work before mm. um, and a lot of range stuff that, uh, you know, people just don't credit him for. He plays something darker here, which I I actually think he did a good job. I think he did. I think yeah. he – I mean, there's no – he's shirtless for a large portion, which was unnecessary but not unpleasant. <laughs> and gratuitous. But, <laughs> Very gratuitous. But that actually cracks me up. And in some ways, <laughs> I guess it fits with the character, but I also think it was a bit of a cheap, yeah, yeah. <laughs> cheap move. But you know, I've whatever. seen some interviews with the actors, and they all laugh about that. They just yeah. go, you know, it's so, it's so unfair. It's like you try <laughs> to act opposite that, and it just, you know, it's, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, actually, my favourite uh, character mm. is played by a guy called Lewis Pullman. Yeah, um, I thought you might like that character. Yeah, I thought. That was uh, the way they did that was excellent. You learn more and more about that character, and it's very conflicting, I think, and I think that's the whole point. But I think that actor did a lovely job. By the way, he's Bill Pullman's son. Oh, is he? Yes, he well, is. that's why he's so good. <laughs> uh, I can't 
but he reminds me of every. Um, there's a whole bunch of of actors who he reminds me of. Strangely enough, he's got a bit of Tom um, Hollandy in the face. Hmm. I thought when I actually saw the trailer the first time that it could be him. He reminds me of the guy of Citizen Z from uh, Z Nation, uh-huh. uh, and also um, <laughs> strangely enough, of the um, the guy who gets shotgunned in Preacher. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's no, there's no w- way to gild this. They call that character Arseface. Oh, yeah. You know. Um, so this, you know, it's just uh, a, a, a sort of, a, an, again, a concentration of, of, mm. of, of facial tropes in this guy that, that had me thinking one thing. But, you know, yeah. So it's, I thought that was well played. And he looks so young and, yeah, mm. he was a good character. Um, look, there are... Range of other, yeah. There's not this because this is a, is a bottle show, mm. a bottle movie. There's not too many other characters in there, mm. uh, but you will see sort of things in flashbacks and so on. But things anyway, pop up, but uh, they're not really. Important. Yeah, and but they are, there are Easter eggs in those too, by the way. So if you want to go play that little mm. Easter egg hunt, you can do that yourself. <laughs> but you know, they actually um, passed over Tom Holland. Oh, they did. So, yeah, so. so they must have been looking for a Tom Holland get, lookalike. Get me Tom Holland. <laughs> That's so yeah, because they look very similar. <laughs> but I think this guy, Lewis Pullman, he did he probably did a much better job. Yeah, so it's this case, it's get me somebody who looks like Tom Holland. Anyway, um, yeah, I thought this film uh, earned the earned its spurs in in trickiness. Mm. By the time they, they got to them, I thought, you know what, that's pretty weird, but I'll buy it. You've given me enough to yeah to get there. There was some portions where it was a bit slow for me, and it could be because I was expecting something a little bit more pacey and maybe a little bit more, not fun, but a bit more tongue in cheek. But it does get quite dark in some parts. Do you think your expectations were over raised by um, Cabin in the Woods for this one? Well, I didn't. I like I said, I hadn't realised that he uh. had done this particular film. So, but going in, I think the trailer is quite pacey and very upbeat and it sort of has this haphazard energy that kind of makes you feel like it's going to just be a rollicking Tarantino-esque film. But, um, yeah, I was a bit surprised. Mm. Um, Well, in terms of uh, how we're going to play this, in uh, in terms of um, what we'd go with the yeah, nah, maybe rating here Mm. in zero G terms... I have no hesitation in giving this a solid yeah. Yeah, um, I... I don't know if I want to go quite to hell yeah, but I'm getting there. I could be persuaded to do that. Honestly, it's a slow burn, I think. Yeah. I wasn't sure how I felt about it at all when I came out. I was like, oh, it's just okay. But I actually haven't stopped thinking about it. I think yeah. there has flo- it has its flaws, but like I said, I was still thinking about it this morning and it left parts of it left an impression, so... There are no loose ends, I actually felt, which I, I, I appreciated mm. by the end of this fairly convoluted film. Oh, very convoluted. <laughs> but there, um. there were people in the audience who, who missed things that I that clearly I got. Yeah. And I really sort of thought, oh, how could you miss that? Mm. But It gives you plenty. Like, they're not breadcrumbs. They're kind of bread rolls <laughs> that they sort of leave for you. Yeah. Oh, actually, I was thinking we should play. A tr- so, yeah, we, we, we like this one. Yeah. I think it, it won't be for everyone. But... Um, uh, and um, I think we'll go with a track by Cynthia mm-hmm. Evro again. She's such a lovely voice. And she's got a great name too. I can't pronounce her full name, but um, I'll go with Cynthia. <laughs> and it's uh, called Fly Before You Fall, and it's from another motion picture soundtrack that she worked on, Beyond the Lights. Great. 
I'm Terry Pratchett, the undeservedly famous author of the Discworld novels, so you can believe me when I say that Zero G on 3 R is the finest science fiction and fantasy show this side of the black stump. I also think Dibbler's delicious pork sausages are the finest eating anywhere, anywhere in the world, so you know you can trust me on this. Ha 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 ha, with three exclamation marks. Yeah, Fly Before You Fall, Cynthia Evro from Beyond the Lights, and of course she plays uh, Darlene Sweet, is that her name? In, uh, yes. Bad Times at the El Royale. Oh, there's some good scenes in it. And yeah. There's some, there's some excellent dialogue too. Mm, mm, uh, I was thinking, mm. listening, that, watching. This is um, Buffy dialogue, basically. Like I said, I hadn't, I came out of it a bit meh, but when I think back and it stuck with me, so yeah. yeah. It's gone yeah. up to a year. Yeah, see, <laughs> I started it a year and I'm vacillating over I'm going to go to a hell year. I don't know mm. if I will. Mm. I'd like to see it again. But that's, you know, that's not a bad thing when you think about it. No. All right, and to Doctor Who. Yes. The third episode of the 11th season. Mm-hmm. It's called Rosa. Yes. And in which we see the Doctor travel back in time to racially segregated Alabama. Oof. And the title gives it away, Rosa Parks. Yes. The woman on the bus. The boycott. Mm. And then I felt awful because I know only the basics about that. But then I was like, oh, no, I know a decent amount. But I felt a little bit... Um, I don't know. I think it's it's something that everybody should try and educate themselves about. But. And now we are because yes. we've watched Doctor Who. We need <laughs> <laughs> and possibly um, gone and looked up the Wikipedia entry. Yes. Just to see if it's historically accurate. And I did learn about it in school, I think. Yeah. Um, but uh, what I thought was really interesting in terms of Doctor Who related stuff is this is obviously, again, it's for people like me, they're like, look, we do this off-world stuff. And now this is an example of some of the other stuff we do, which is time travel Earth stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of giving me little samples of different types of episodes I might see. So I thought that was, I thought that was very clever. That's very perceptive. <laughs> Doctor Who originally started out as a historical time travel series. Ah, see. So the uh, that rapidly went south. <laughs> <laughs> they did. They did go back to different eras. They've been to the Aztec Empire. They've been to the. Um, various visited the Roman Empire a couple of times. I mean, why make it a time ship as well if you're not going to, you know, make the most of Earth history? A lot of those sorts of stories have involved aliens meddling with time. Ah, uh, Or okay. they've been, you know, so like, well, the giant Cybermen in Victorian England. <laughs> Blend right in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and this one is no exception. We are mm-hmm. a week out from this episode having dropped, so we mm-hmm. do spoil it now. The concept of this one is that the Doctor and his her companions... See, his, I was thinking mm. his. Her companions are uh, in Alabama and they've been drawn there by the Doctor detecting a certain amount of um, timey-wimey radiation. Yes. And uh, there's an alien dude there. Actually, I don't know if he is an alien or he's from the future anyway. He's some tool. <laughs> yeah. He's a, he's a convict from the future. His name is Crasco. This is not an unusual Doctor Who trope, by the way. There have been many occasions where mm. um, criminals from the future have come into the past. Just to, just to get their kicks by <laughs> ruining and, history. And even though this is set, you know, when it is, the... Story itself could be taken from today's headlines mm. in the United States in a lot of ways. Uh, and that's the point, you know, yeah. science fiction holding up the, the black mirror to yeah. everything that's going on in the world. Um, God, it's tough to watch that. I mean, which is so, you know, obviously it was tough to live that. But watching 
things around that time of like segregation and exactly what that was like. Mm. It's very difficult. Well, this is not the first time that they've run into that trope in Doctor Who, obviously. Oh, okay. um, there was uh, a, an episode with Sylvester McCoy and, and um, uh, the Seventh Doctor and, uh, and Ace, basically, mm-hmm. and they were in that time in England. Okay. And um, there was racial problems there too. Mm. Uh, and they played it pretty much the same way here. The, the companions find it unspeakably horrible. Yeah. Uh, obviously, we have people of colour amongst the companions. That's what I thought was a really interesting addition here is obviously we knew that Ryan was going to have a difficult time and it would be part of, you know, the juxtaposition of what he's used to life being like and obviously not perfect as they have that discussion around, you know, things are better but they're not perfect. But just, again, seeing exactly how he would have been treated in that time. Mm-hmm. And they brought they brought it into into um, focus as well because Yasmin mm. also had problems. That was the I thought that was excellent in that was the scene on the bus where she first gets on the bus and she's like, "Where am I supposed to sit? Like, does coloured mean, you know? Like, and then she said, "Oh well, that he let me on in the front of the bus. Does that yeah. insinuate I can sit in the front?" I thought all of that was really interesting. And also Graham, um, they gave him. White guilt, yeah, basically, uh, and I thought that all of these uh, facets blended in quite well to give mm. us a really good cross section of of reactions to these terrible times, and made you realise you don't want to go there again. Mm. Stop demonising people. Yeah. Don't do this. Uh, so I, I thought this was a really important episode of Doctor Who, and it wears it on its sleeve. It plays very dramatic. <laughs> um, um, but it should do, damn it. Yeah. The only criticism I might have is that the alien from the future... Was crap. Uh, well, it's Crasco. <laughs> he's, 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 oh, is he a known person? Is he a... No. Oh, so he's no. just a... No, I'm just punning off crap. <laughs> I was like, oh, he's like a famous crap alien. No, no. 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 He could be. Mm. There's any number of Doctor Who villains who he could be. Yeah, we, right. Because we will, and we will later find out perhaps. Unless, of course, when he's sent uh, away using a, a time uh, displacement gadget, when he's sent away, I really hope, because it was a nasty character, I really mm. hope that he ended up somewhere with fangs and dinosaurs yeah. and <laughs> yeah. you know, we'll never see him again. I just didn't find him, like obviously he was foul, I just didn't find that portrayal to be very... He's an example where the big bad of the episode doesn't turn out to be the real big bad. Yeah, yeah. Because the monsters in this story were the good citizens yes. in the town mm. of that era. God. Because they they were some of the most awful people I've ever encountered in Doctor Who. Yeah. There have been some pretty nasty ones. But because these were just real oh. historical characters. You know, I mean, and full marks to... The ironically named Trevor White playing the bus driver James Blake. Gosh, he was what lo- an unpleasant role to have to he was lo- get in the mindset. He of. was loathsome. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and that can't have been easy to play. That uh, he is actually Canadian. I have seen him before in a lot of things. Oh. He, he's shown up in uh, the new Outer Limits, uh, Millennium, where he played an FBI computer set specialist. Uh, so he's done a lot of these uh, little fringe sort of roles and characters where he's playing in strange situations and I, I felt he really was the right person to go to for this. Yeah. And God, Graham's face on the bus, I just... Oh. I really love that character. I think that actor does such a lovely job of playing that 
that character. What's what? his name? God, I've forgotten the actor's name already. Well, um, it's uh, Bradley Walsh. He's, mm. a, he's a comedian and, you know, he's quite He's done a... I think a he was lot. in the procedural that... Yeah, he's done a lot in, in English um, mm. British drama. Um, but what I liked about uh, his particular character in this one... Um, He's had to squirm as he realised he was part of this. Yeah. You know, and that is a thing too. Mm. You know, it doesn't eclipse actually having your head beaten in by, by white cops yeah. or shot or anything like that. But it, it, is a th- it is a thing to be felt, to feel like you're complicit in this ugliness. Yeah. Uh, and the thing about Yasmin, um, what did they, they mistake her for a Mexican, Mexican. or something like that? Uh, yeah. And, you know, whatever. But um, that was actually very personal to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because when I was a kid, I was mistaken for Japanese. Yeah. Uh, and this was not a good thing. Not, no. In, 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 in 1960s Australia, because there was still lingering, and still is now, you know, antagonism towards Japan for, because of World War II. Um, and protestations that I was actually of Chinese descent didn't work very well either because there was, we were at a Cold War with China. You <laughs> <laughs> couldn't win. So I felt for her because here she was being mistaken. Yeah. You know? And the, and the awful thing is, is I kept wondering, is she going to try and say, no, I'm not Mexican? Mm. And that's awful too. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> we all think we want to be able to say, I'm Spartacus as well, <laughs> but, you know... Oh, anyway, a, a slight digression there. But that's part of what I thought this episode had. It, it has a lot of resonance for a lot of people. Mm. Uh, and that's good. That's, that's what Doctor Who should do. It's written by uh, Mallory Blackman and Chris Chibnall. Um, so not just the showrunner, Chris Chibnall, uh, but Mallory Blackman is um, a writer who's done quite a, a bit of work in um, stories for children and young adults. And I I felt that kind of showed a little bit here because I I felt like I was being walked through this history. Yeah, uh, yeah. In in an educational way. Yeah. So I think that was uh, probably a good choice there. I'm not quite sure why they chose it, but she's done um, uh, episodes of um, other shows, Biker Grove, uh, WYSIWYG and Pig Heart Boy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so they sort of... All related (laughs) content. But... She actually worked with um, uh, Marina Sirtis on a, on a 1996 telemovie. There's a Star Trek crossover there. Yeah. So, you know, Star Trek does all these sorts of things every day, <laughs> practically. Yeah, the Montgomery bus boycott, I thought they explained that well. And the fact that she'd already knew Martin Luther King. Yes, who's, yep. Who's Obviously un- becomes uh, a big player. Yeah, he's a little bit of an unknown then. Yep. You know, I, I thought all of that was so well worked out. Uh, and... I think the procedural of running around the town mm. was quite well done and it also brought out some of the skills of the characters again, of the yeah. companions. So we got to see Yasmin doing her police work. Yeah, yeah, uh, figuring stuff out. and Graham, once again, it's bus-related. But I like that. And, you know, he uses his, his ability to just walk around the town, go to the bar, like his whiteness, quote-unquote, to yeah. help out with the story. And it's, it's so funny, though. I'm beginning to wonder, is every place Everything's they go, is there always going to be public transport-related issues that Well, Graham's got a share. But I think part of his, his <laughs> skill is also with people. I think that's also... He, you know, he managed to get the information out of... We're going to have to find... Graham has to have some other strings to his bow. We know, you know, he's, he's got the whole... Um, 
uh, grandfather thing going. Mm. Um, okay, so he's a, a bus. He was a bus driver, so he's got that. We need another string to his bow. Well, I think he like. I think he's like the Xander. He's kind of the heart of the, the gang. Yeah, and like obviously Yaz is kind of more like the Willow. That's the vibe that I get. Are we going to get? Do we? Need, does he have a hobby? Because you know mm. he's retired. He should have a hobby that'll be significant. And oh. I'm thinking, what would an ex-bus driver have? Oh my God! Don't tell me he's a train spotter or something. <laughs> Or a bus spotter. <laughs> It'll be something where he's just like very, very good with yeah. all transport related <laughs> yes. intel. Um, uh, but I yeah. agree, they all worked worked well. And I think Ryan, as the most I view naive character, mm-hmm. you know, I think part of it for him is he's getting a bit more and more insight and learning a bit more with each episode. I think he's growing. Like the last episode, it was about like violence doesn't solve everything. This episode, it's a bit, you know, he's sort of learning a bit more about, I guess, what it means to be personal colour. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think I like that element of it because he can be a bit of a pain in the ass. I've heard that, and this is just a, a quick rammer that sort of skimmed across the top of my head as I was coming in today, that mm. um, they're going to uh, go to um, India during the partition. Oh, God. Yeah. God, so, so we're really just going to delve into all kinds of uh, yeah. companion-related... Stuff, Yeah. And that's a good idea because these mm. are and, – and the weirdest thing was I was having a discussion with a colleague the other day about the partition. We realised we didn't know as much about it. Well, this is so it. We got to Another it. opportunity to learn. <laughs> yeah. Um, All of history is there, just educators. Oh, I'm intrigued to see what the next um, – what the next episode will be like. Mm. So – which is out – Today, obviously, but we won't yes, cover we won't till next talk week. About that today. Uh, all right, so we'll have a track here, which is David Bowie. Yay! Uh, Young Americans. This is one of my favourite Bowies. And it is a song where he actually sings about civil rights in the United States and the Rosa Park incident, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, and a lot of things that were going on in America in 1974, because he was actually there doing his Diamond Dogs tour, and in between. The gigs. He was recording this in Philadelphia with Visconti, huh? um, not the other that Visconti. <laughs> uh, and um, the, uh, the the song itself has a lot of resonance with Nixonian sort of elements and yeah, and that's a great track. Young Americans. In the marmalade forest, forest. between the make-believe trees. G'day, I'm Brett McKenzie. I played an in elf in Lord of the Rings. My dad played Ellen Dolby King. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R. And I have one thing to say. My name is Figwit the Elf. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Yeah, Mr. Bowie of Young Americans. Mm. Uh, it's almost like he knew that Doctor Who <laughs> would do a Rosa Parks episode and prepared that one just for us. Thanks, Bowie. But that was back in the day. Yeah. So, you know, wow. <laughs> That's a good track. Yeah. All right, now uh, we're going to play a fairly long track at the end of the show today, and it's going to be uh, an interview between that um, Orson Welles and H.G. Wells did together mm. on uh, KTSA radio back in 19... Oh, actually, I'm not quite sure when it was when they actually did the uh, thing, but this came from the definitive 75, 75th anniversary collection of Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. So this is to tie in with the anniversary now, it's October the 28th, um, yesterday, uh, of the um, War of the Worlds broadcast, you know, the one that Orson Welles did <laughs> that's panicked America. <laughs> uh, 
And I thought I'd play this this whole little interview because October the 30th, that was uh, when they, they did the original broadcast, the Mercury Theatre of the Air. Uh, and um, two of uh, Zero G's, <laughs> we'll call, call them companions in a way, uh, <laughs> Innocent Lloyd, the uh, little acting troupe, uh, putting on their own War of the Worlds anniversary broadcast at Carson Place off Little Collins Street in the Melbourne CBD. So uh, this is uh, this is the Butterfly Room, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. that's what it's called. Um, so go to the Butterfly Room if you want to find out more about that. And that's on tonight, I think, at 7 o'clock, their anniversary War of the Worlds broadcast. So this particular little piece is uh, just Orson Welles and H.G. Um, Wells Jeez. together in one room. And the, the interviewer wisely sort of gets out of the way. Good. So, I hate an overzealous moderator. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not that we'd know anything about that. <laughs> and, uh, okay, so coming up next is the very cool Joe Brunatic mm-hmm. with Astral Glamour. And we'll leave you with this until next week. And we will probably talk about Daredevil Free next week when yes. we've assimilated some more. And happy Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.